Welcome, everybody. My name is Bettina Friedrich, and I'm chairing tonight's event. I want to welcome all of you. Thanks a lot for coming. I also want to thank the members of the panel who are giving their precious time to be with us today and to discuss this really interesting topic. Uh, I want to particularly thank Mark Bryant who jumped in last minute because uh, his CEO couldn't make it because she's ill, unfortunately. So thanks a lot for um, jumping in short notice. Uh, he's representing Mindframe. I also want to uh, welcome uh, the representatives of the media. I'm very excited that ABC is here and they will record tonight's session and it will be broadcast uh, at Radio National. I would also like to point out that this event tonight is uh, co-presented by the Faculty of Medicine and the P Department for Media and Communications. Before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Just a brief explanation why this event tonight is actually happening. So I'm a researcher at the uh, Brain and Mind Center. I'm a psychologist. I'm doing research on mental health and I've always been interested in it. Uh, but I've also noticed that the things we read in textbooks about mental health often doesn't really represent what our friends who have uh, severe psychiatric conditions actually go through. So I've been really interested in mental health stigma and how we communicate about mental health and to have like a social psychiatric perspective on that really important topic. And uh, I started here 10 months ago and then I found out, so I've got this interest in health communication and media, and then I found out that Professor Goggin is also doing research in media and disability, and so I thought it's a good idea to link up, and so we both together had the idea to do this, because I think it's really important to discuss how we speak about mental health in the media, because we are in a media age and media has a massive impact on how we feel, think, and act on certain issues. So now I'm going to join the panelists. Uh, I'll briefly introduce them and then we can start with the questions and the panel discussion. I will start with Georgie Harman, who is sitting uh, on my left. Georgie Harman was appointed as the CEO of Beyond Blue in May 2014. Georgie has worked in the community, public and private sectors in Australia and the United Kingdom in policy development and service delivery. Previously, she was the deputy CEO of Australia's National Mental Health Commission. Now we're going to introduce Sophie Scott. <laughs> Journalists are always busy, I know that. Um, Sophie Scott is the national medical reporter for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, in addition, in addition to being a prominent public speaker. Sophie has won numerous awards and accolades for excellence in medical and health journalism, including multiple awards from various professional medical colleges. Mark Bryan joined the Hunter Institute of Mental Health in February 2009. He's a qualified journalist and communication professional, having completed the National Council for the Training Journalist Pre-Entry course in the UK and a Bachelor of Communication. Mark is also a full member of the Public Relations Institute of Australia, PRIA. And then Gerard Goggin, he's Professor of Media and Communications at the University of Sydney. Currently, he's also an ARC Future Fellow studying disability, digital technology, and human rights. 
Gerard's books include Rutledge Companion to Disability and the Media, Disability and the Media, and with Christopher Newell, Disability in Australia and Digital Disability. Okay, Sophie, I think uh, it would be nice to start with you. Do you want to share your thoughts on how we currently report about mental health issues in the media? Um, well, first of all, I think it's, uh, it's tricky when you say the media, because the media is made up of a number of many different organisations, different journalists, different mediums, and um, so I, I don't uh, speak for the media as a whole, but I can certainly speak about what we do at ABC, yeah. um, but I can't guarantee that other organisations will do what we do. <laughs> um, and that's something that I would always advise anyone dealing with the media, that you look at the types of stories that they generally do and, and see whether you would like to be portrayed in a, the same light and the same way. Um, that's my little buyer beware story for the media. When it comes to mental health, I think uh, there has been huge improvements in how the media covers mental health. One of the biggest improvements, I think, has been uh, the ability of people to share their own personal stories, their own journeys. And when I was thinking about it today, people like Jessica Rowe um, at Channel 10, Andrew Robb, his struggles with depression, John Brogdon, having high-profile individuals who are able to share their stories of what they've been through really resonate with the people watching those stories and reading those stories. So I think all credit to those individuals who were able to um, take that brave step and the media for reporting it. I think that's been a, a huge development. And I think that's helped to remove a lot of the stigma and taboo about some uh, parts of mental health, particularly depression and anxiety. But I do think there is still a way to go to remove the stigma about other more serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia, um, psychosis, uh, things like that, that people probably would not be as comfortable disclosing to, to their friends and family, and let alone going on national television <laughs> and talking about it. So I, um, I think these days people really want to hear people's stories and the statistics show that one in five people, as Georgie was saying just before we came up here, will suffer a mental illness. So one in five means that that's our friends, our families, our work colleagues. And so being able to tell their stories um, is a really important part of what the media needs to do, I think, <coughs> to continue to tell those stories. And, and I think also to do it in a, in a mindful and um, meaningful way yeah. as, much as, as much as you can. I mean, even today, I actually sit in the sports department just because there's no room for me to sit with my actual team. But it's amazing how often health and mental health issues come up in sport. Like even this afternoon with Lance Buddy Franklin, that the announcement that he was you know, not playing because of mental health issues. But the, the difficulty with that announcement was that it was so non-specific that it was difficult for really people to make much sense of what the announcement was. So um, I think if people are willing to be as open as they feel they can be, um, that definitely helps the media to interpret and get the message out to the audience about what's actually, what that person's actually going through. Do you think the stigma uh, 
with regard to mental health is bigger, like in the sports community. So this is why it's actually uh, extra important to have these stories come out of, uh, you know, very well-known sports personalities to report the issues. I, th I think it's really important that people in all walks of life feel comfortable to share their stories and their journey. But and when we were just talking about it this afternoon about mental health issues in sport, and we could easily rattle off numbers of people who have been able to come out and say, you know, in the sporting field that they do have a mental health issue and they're able to um, discuss that. And I think, you know, for, for young people who have sporting heroes, they need to know that they're, they're not superhuman, that they are vulnerable, just like everybody else. So I think it's really important that, we, that they talk about it and that the media covers it. One thing I noticed after moving here is that the ABC has actually a lot of uh, really excellent programs on mental health. I saw a lot of interesting things uh, for Corners, I think is the name of the program. I'm not from here. Uh, it was uh, about uh, veterans and their PTSD. And I found that really uh, interesting because I worked in the US, the UK, and I'm from Germany. And do you know, if, do you think there, and I know you've worked in Washington DC or just told yeah. me, do you think there's a special awareness uh, with regard to mental health here in Australia compared to other countries? I think there is, and I'll just put in a little plug for um, ABC. Last year we ran an initiative called Mental As, and we are running the same initiative again this year um, between the 4th and the 11th of October where ABC decided to um, really make a statement and put mental health on the agenda for, for its audiences. And it was very, very successful and popular. You know, in tell, being able to tell people's stories, not only of just depression and anxiety, but, you know, fly on that, the, the fly on the wall documentary in, a mental, in the mental health ward. That was probably one of the highlights of last year's um, mental as. And so I'm not sure what this year's um, week of events and programming will hold, but certainly it was, um, I think, a real turning point in, in being able a, a network and all our networks devoting a whole week to mental health yeah. um, was, a, was a really great initiative. And the, the good thing about it was that it raised money for research, in, which I'm a big supporter of research. So... I think that was another great... We thing. like this here. <laughs> yeah. It's easy to say that to an, in the university. Yeah. <laughs> a popular thing in the audience. But, yeah, so I think, you know, while I haven't worked overseas for quite a while, but I certainly know in Australia that um, I think it's great that we are so open about yeah. mental health and, and, and we need to keep talking about it. And there are areas where we need to do better. Um, and, like, we'll talk about that later with suicide and suicide prevention. So I don't think we're there yet. Yeah. I had the impression Mark wanted to say something when I said about, you know, people in Australia being maybe more aware of mental health issues. You saw a reaction there on your side? Yeah. Do you, do you want me to go? go Next. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's sort of like my eyes twinkled then. Um, as you can tell by my accent, uh, I'm English. And uh, the way that I kind of like see media reporting in Australia is a bit like if you looked at like media ashes, that Australia would probably like win them probably for the last like 15 years but they would repeatedly win them. Um, whereas we all know what happens in true life with cricket, that, that belongs to, to England at the moment. Sorry to break it to you. Um, but but there's a, there is a reason why things are different in, in Australia. And uh, um, I was a journalist for eight years in the UK before I moved into health uh, in the UK and then and came to Australia. Like most problems when we come here, it's like we're going to go and show the, the Australians how to do things properly, you know, that 
they're a bit behind. They're all the way over the other side of the, the world. But um, to my surprise, um, I got the opportunity to, to work on a project called Mindframe, which I thought was the mind charity, because when I came here, like everything in Australia, you never know who's in charge. There's so many agencies and NGOs. I was like, well, which, which one is the peak body? Because we just have NHS in the UK, and everyone belongs to them. It's quite regimental and, and easy to, to navigate. What I found about Mindframe and, and working like, was this unique thing of them. Um, tell the sort of the history in the, in the mid '90s when suicide rates were going up, particularly around uh, uh, teenage or, or young um, young people. Um, the World Health Organization said we needed guidelines on uh, suicide reporting. Well, actually, they wanted uh, suicide prevention strategies in each country, um, and one of the core components was about media reporting. But what Australia did different to the other countries, which also introduced guidelines for the media is an element of capacity building for the media. Well, this was where instead of just having resources and having them up on, on a health website and saying, you know, and every time the media reported something that didn't follow the guidelines, they'll go and tell them off. And any journalist would know that when you got a call from someone saying, you know, you know pointing the finger, um, we used to say that, see that as stripes in the newsrooms that I won't say which newsrooms I worked in, but it was seen as a good thing when they complained. It was like, well, of course they were complaining. They're government. So what they found here, and, and this is what the weird thing about the mind frame, it is funded by the Australian government. But I, when I started working on this about seven years ago, is when I go into newsrooms, um, the journalists kind of like felt that it was part of their culture, it was part of their thing. So when you look back at mind frame, this is going back to like the late 90s, about 97, so like 18 years ago, um, the, very early on got the media to be early adopters. So that meant like ABC, the Press Council, News Limited, every, all the peak bodies and, and news agencies got around the table and said, yeah, let's introduce something that's fit for purpose, that's meaningful, and also how can we disseminate? And that means, as well as having resources, how do we get people to change behavior? So as I said, in the UK, the Samaritans, quite sophisticated, but they just have guidelines. They have a, ambassadors, which is a, a cool thing to have. You've got a few ambassadors that come out and say, this is how you, you should do it. But in Australia, it's unique, and we don't, I think Mindframe doesn't get the credit that it deserves because we're behind the scenes every day, like um, on Friday, I'm helping a documentary crew. But what we saw here is we go into newsrooms, we actually go and train and show journalists what the resources are, um, how to use them, building their capacity. Now, I likened it to when I was a journalist, I learned about contempt of court, um, copyright, libel laws in the UK are really strong, so we're given a few tips to make sure that we don't write something really nasty about McDonald's or something like that, because they will sue you. And the editor wants you to make sure that you're across, you've got familiarity with de defamation laws. And so when I do training, and I go into the Herald Sun, the Daily Telegraph, Brisbane Courier Mail, um, ABC, when the penny drops, when the journalists get the training, it is like receiving some capacity building of covering things like how to cover a court case without um, being sent to jail for naming a child uh, or, or something like that. And the penny drops, and they always find it, ah, I just thought it was a taboo that we couldn't cover it, you know, this kind of thing. Now, we often hear in the media as well that we don't talk about suicide. Obviously, that is something that is a, is a big debate. There's a big consumption of how we deal with the pointy end of mental health or just resilience going up the health stream uh, continuum. But what we have seen in Australia, and this is where the World Health Organization uh, uh, said that Australia were leading the way, 
We have seen increasing media reporting of suicide increase twofold since the introduction of uh, uh, Mindframe in Australia. It's not just Mindframe. What we also have is a unique um, situation in Australia. We get organisations, I'm going to throw something over to, to Georgie, the Beyond Blues, um, we had the Sane Australias, we had the Black Dog Institutes, Lifeline, all these numerous organisations we've got in Australia. We actually worked with them, but they went out and worked with the media. So the media had the right resources, the, the right resource to talk properly about stories, how to generate those stories that were helpful. But the media was, were becoming more sophisticated on the way that they reported. Now, our evidence from the University of Melbourne not only sh showed an increase in reporting, and that's death stories, which are the, kind of like the most problematic. We also saw the quality score increase from 57 to 75%. Nowhere else, other than one study in, Aust in Austria where they asked for the media to do a sort of a blackout on rail suicides, um, we haven't really seen much of a change. And even today, I saw the Daily Mirror back home in the UK, and I talked to my ex-journalist uh, uh, friends straight, on to, you know, straight into the method um, uh, in the headline. Sensationist reporting, simplistic. The person fell out with their boyfriend or the girlfriend, that kind of stuff. Where in Australia, it's a lot more sophisticated. And when Robin Williams took his own life last year, there was an Englishman here, a real hipster, big long beard, no socks on. He worked at the Wall Street Journal, and he had come here to teach News Limited journalists how to use social media. But what he found when he came here was that when Robin Williams died, he was tweeting front pages from Australia to America, to the UK, to say something's different here. The Australian media have compassion. They showed um, more, un looked at more the underlying risk factors that perhaps Robin Williams was going through. Of course, it was a celebrity suicide, but they talked about grief. How, how are people responding uh, um, to this um, unique, probably the most biggest celebrity suicide since Marilyn Monroe. And it was a different reporting in this country. Um, obviously, it probably sent a lot more um, uh, people in Australia to the help-seeking information, because that's what we do. We try to send everyone to Lifeline, Beyond Blue, Kids Helpline, etc. But it did show an element of sophistication that really blew away an um, a UK journalist that was here, again, to teach Australians to suck eggs. I'll finish there and I'll come back with some more anecdotes. Okay, thanks a lot. Yeah, I would suggest that later uh, when we discuss in the whole panel, we talk about this reporting about suicide again, because I know you, Sophie, also <laughs> want to say a couple of things about it. Um, for the moment being, I would uh, move over to Jared, And uh, maybe, Jared, you can share with us what you think on the topic. Yeah, I'm, I'm already um, finding it. You know, incredibly interesting to hear, particularly because I'm based in the Department of Media and Communication, so we're training, uh, you know, students, hopefully for jobs that will be there. But I think what, what's evident in, in the mental health arena, and I think it's come out already in what Sophie and Mark have been talking about, is that there's a, a kind of innovation going on there. And I think it has to do from the nature of the sector as well. So I think the, the sector has got the presence of organisations like Beyond Blue, a bunch of other organisations, and uh, uh, that appear to be very engaged with the new kinds of media and creating them. So whether that's running social media platforms, whether that's engaged in the capacity building, I think that's really incredibly interesting. And I suppose f from my perspective, a, a lot of the work I have done and doing and interested in is about broader issues around diversity and representation and reporting in the media, and particularly around disability. 
and from I've worked uh, on and off for a couple of decades with disability communities, with deaf communities, with a bunch of other people, about the sense in which you know now we're engaged in a social transformation around disability, that particularly um, we are trying to change the way that as a society we've excluded people, we discriminate uh, against people, and part of that is is mental health, is is around psychological disabilities. And I suppose I'm very interested in the sense in which what seems to have happened around um, you know, the long histories of madness, around the ways that our minds trouble us, around um, the way that we have historically dealt in specific cultural contexts. You think of Australia uh, as a settler colony, the, the, the long histories in Australia around how we've regarded states, states of insanity, the psyche, um, the way we had asylums in the 19th century, 20th century deinstitutionalisation, we've now come to talk about um, these issues around mental health. And I think that's been an incredible breakthrough. That's incredibly important. But I wonder what's the limits of that as well. Um, and I think one of the things I'm interested in is in the next stage of building on the work that's been done here, um, do we need other perspectives to also cross-pollinate? And so the, one of the, I think, the insights that comes from, from a lot of work around disability is to say, look, there's what about the social and cultural components of health? Because not everything that has to do with the mind and you know, mental um, disorders and troubles and the way that uh, there's a very fine line for, I think, many of us, or if not all of us, between madness and sanity, that has a social and cultural component as well. Particularly in a multicultural society, that's the case. So not everything is about health. So how do we deal with this? And I think one of the reasons that um, we have this work to do around, I think, mental health is that part of this history has been about um, madness in our society has stood in for a lot of other things. There's a lot of things we think of, you know, again, the continual reporting around criminality and mental health, and we still have trouble dislodging these associations. So there's all sorts of stereotypes that, um, you know, we've got the body of work of Mindframe and journalists and others to do this. Um, but I think this is where we need to, uh, you know, think creatively again about what is this repertoire we're now developing. Increasingly, there is the space when there's um, reporting that is discriminatory around mental health. We have quick responses from media. So the ABC's uh, The Weekly program um, is an instance where there was, they picked up the reporting around uh, the shootings in the US recently and did a bit of that kind of news comedy program to skewer it. And so there's very fast responses now that in media we've got much more challenging, as it were, if people put, you know, um, problematic, troubling, you know, stereotypical representations out there, people are onto it and are, and are kind of getting into that. So I suppose from my perspective, I'm, I think that there is another stage here about saying, okay, well, let's, let's look at how we can um, join... Uh, that what's occurred in mental health to other areas of diversity in society and vice versa, that there's other ways that we need to think about how we regard you know, what we're talking about as mental health. So. Okay. Thanks a lot. I have one question because, as you know, I'm a psychologist, so like my focus is always mental sure. health in the media, so I'm not an expert in uh, physical disabilities. If, if you had to compare how we speak about mental health in the media and how we uh, speak about physical health, what is like the main difference? Is, this, is there a big gap in terms of how far we've come? Um, look, I think, I mean, when, when I 
talk about disability, I suppose, I mean the diversity of disability, and we see that in mental health as well. There's a great diversity around that. But I think there has been a sense in which, around media, the classic things have been, you know, certain kinds of physical impairment have been privileged. And we see a change in that around, say, particularly the Paralympics and disability sport. That's become, you know, sporting uh, celebrities, uh, sports people with disability have become, uh, in some ways, uh, um, more acceptable. They've become actually celebrated, which is incredibly important. And so I think, you know, for, for one of the, the kind of things that I think is important to, to try and bring together is that some of the diversity of what we think of as mental health. So if you look at psychological disability, for instance, the recent Australian Bureau of Statistic figures that came out in July showed that I think 3.8% of the Australian population has some kind of psychological disability. And you know that's, that kind of figure is about a fifth of all Australians counted as having disability. And those psychological disabilities, again, I'm speaking the language of statistical agencies and, you know, it's a construction and has a particular strange register as well. But um, people with psychological disabilities are experiencing other kinds of conditions as well. And so I think one of the challenges for us in the media is how do you represent some of those? How do you broaden the narratives? And I think broadly around disability, I think there's a bit of a sense around people doing research to say, look, we've come a fair way but there's a long way to go. There's still a lot of disabling images in society that's really holding us back. And actually, mental health's a really important component of that. So we've had some progress, but there's a long way to go. Yeah. And what role, like as a media researcher, what role can academic research play to get us further down the road in that area? Sure. I think it can play a big role. I mean, I think to start with, I think it's underdone. I mean, in, in hearing more about the area of mental health, it seems to me there's been quite a body of work done there that could be cross-pollinated. But I think there's still some basic things. We don't know around the messages of mental health. I, th I think we still lack a, a you know, rigorous sense of how do audiences receive this? How, how do they actually interact around messages with mental health? We know some of this. Uh, and I think around particular populations that are under study, because we think around indigenous um, populations, around culturally diverse populations. So I think there's a lot of work to do. And I think there's a lot of work to do in studying some of the innovations coming through. Because I, I agree that, I mean, part of the early wave of work, I think, around mental health and around disability was to say, um, with, you know, around journalists, look, here's the language guidelines. And, and Marks rightly said, well, it's kind of not much use, is it? If you just say, this is the right way to do it, this is the wrong way, we slap you down if it's the wrong way. And it seems to me what's going on now is this much more sophisticated work in the pockets in which it's being done. We don't know a lot, I think, from a research sense of, you know, how, how is this working? We have some clear senses that it is from practitioners. And how could we boost parts of it? How could we... Um, you know, bring this, get this happening more across other areas. So. Thanks a lot. I, th I think uh, I'll now uh, talk with Georgie Harman. And I'm curious about, like, you know, being head of the biggest, you know, mental health organization in Australia. Like, and from the role of the campaigner, how, like, what role does media play for you to, you know, spread the knowledge you sure. want to spread? So um, the first thing I'd say is that I'm not the CEO of a mental health organisation. Okay. I'm the CEO of a communications organisation because um, our fundamental mandate is about 
you know, opening up the conversation and helping people to get to the support um, that they need when they need it. So we spend a, a lot of time talking to journalists. We spend a lot of time um, uh, working with uh, media in its broadest form. And it's not just about raising awareness and, not, and increasing knowledge. It's actually about changing behaviours, changing thought patterns, um, and, and actually from the top down and the bottom up um, as a society saying, uh, you know what, mental health is something that affects all of us. We need to stop talking about mental health and mental illness as somehow being about somebody else, those other people. So let's just run through some figures. Today there are three million Australians living with depression and or anxiety. Today in Australia seven people will have taken their own lives and that's nearly double the national road toll. Every single family has some kind of story, um, whether it's a direct relationship, whether it's personal experience, whether it's, it's supporting someone who lives with a mental health problem, or whether it's someone they work with, or someone in their lives. So this is not about other people, it's about us. Um, the latest figures that we have in Australia show that about 45% of us in our lifetime will experience some kind of mental health problem. So my job is to actually, uh, through my fantastic team at Beyond Blue and through you know, the strong relationships that we've developed with media, is to kind of open up the discourse about this. Um, and, you know, for want of a better word, I hate this word, but normalise the conversation. And what I find is whenever I talk, you know, I've spent a lot of my time talking about this stuff, I quite often get sick of the sound of my own voice. Um, but, but when I have conversations in rooms of, of people like you, when I have one-on-one -on -one chats with people, there's almost a palpable sense of relief that you give permission to talk about this stuff still. Um, and once you do, there's this usual outpouring on my uncle, my brother, my sister, my workmate. Um, so there's this, there's this, you know, it's something that affects all of us. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about, though, was um, non-traditional forms of media, because the way that we're consuming media these days has, is remarkably different to how we were doing it two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago. So we, we at Beyond Blue think about media in its, in its broadest form and we spend a lot of our time and energy, yes, working with traditional media and news media to get our central national messages out. Um, and you've kind of got one shot at that. You've got to get that right. Um, but then what we do is we, through a range of social media platforms and other digital means, test those, you know, really kind of find out exactly what people are really thinking. So we support that national message pushed out through traditional media uh, with ongoing messaging to keep those messages alive through Snapchat, Twitter, um, Instagram and a whole range of other, um, oh, Facebook, a whole range of other social media platforms. And that actually allows us, so social media for me is a bit of a lightning rod. Is this message right? Is it actually getting to real people? And are they engaging with it and understanding what we mean? And are they then reacting in positive and constructive ways? So I think you know, we, should, we should actually have a broader conversation about what media is about today in Australia. So do you think social media is starting to get more important than the general mass media? Or would you not want to compare? Oh, look, I, they're, they're very different beasts. I mean, I think you know, I, I'll still always get up and read the Sydney Morning Herald will go on ABC online, um, which probably says a lot about my politics. Um, but, um, but I will also, and, and look, I'm actually, I'm a really bad person to ask, because I'm a complete, I have no social media 
accounts. Um, I refuse to do it, right? I noticed. Yeah, yeah exactly. So try and find me on Facebook. Good luck. Um, but, but what my guys tell me at, at, in my team is that um, the conversations that we have with people on our social media platforms in our online forums are the ones that really enable us to understand what works, what cuts through, how people's behaviours change, how they react, and therefore how we finesse our messages on an ongoing basis. So, for example, we were the first... Um, we've just launched a, a campaign um, targeting 13 to 17-year-olds. We know that, 13, that teenagers still have many barriers to help-seeking. They still um, are very worried about letting people know when they're struggling, whether that's a teacher, a parent, a mate. Um, so what we did is we developed a character called the brain. Now, the brain is this really bloody irritating character who just annoys you constantly, um, wakes you up in the middle of the night, um, eats your purse to stop you going out the door. Um, so we use dark humour, and it's a way of depersonalising the struggles that you might be feeling in terms of your psychological distress and an organ in your body that's actually sometimes go goes a bit weird. And the, the campaign's called Hashtag Brains Are Weird. Um, and we, we push it out through Snapchat. Um, so, you know, there was a bit of risk involved in that because, you know, uh, usually Snapchat is used for sharing private parts and things like that. Um, and, you know, there's not that... We can't moderate how that image or message is received and what people do with it. But you know what? It's increased web, web traffic to Youth Beyond Blue by 230% in two months. And a quarter of young people visiting our Youth Beyond Blue website are taking our psychological distress test, the K10, for those who are, you know, understand what that means, um, which basically then shows that young people are thinking about how they're feeling and acting upon it. So, you know, I think that social media is something we cannot ignore. In fact, it's something we, sh we need to be embracing and using in much more sophisticated ways. Okay, I, I totally agree. Um, I'd still like to ask you a question with regard to the old school classical media, um, like movies, TV, um, newspapers. What role nowadays do you think these forms of media play in terms of stigma? Do they increase stigma? Do they decrease stigma? Because I, what I notice, and that's not just in Australia, that's globally, is that it's kind of fashionable at the moment to speak a lot of mental health issues, and sometimes it's done in the fashion like more is better. Yeah. I don't always know if more is better. Sometimes I think it would be better to focus on quality than quantity. How do you feel about how mental health issues are portrayed in movies, newspapers, and so oh, on at I the think, moment? I think it's getting much better. Um, and I think that's due to the efforts of a whole range of people, including people who live with mental illness, actually standing up and saying, I don't want to be represented in these ways. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not dangerous. I don't go around killing people. So how, how dare you? In fact, I'm more likely to be the victim of a violent crime than the perpetrator of a violent crime. Um, so I think we are getting better at it as a society. I think, though, I mean, our experience at Beyond Blue is that quite often we get called um, by journalists who want to comment on a story, and sometimes they, they you know, we engage in a conversation with them, and, and you know, there was one uh, glossy men's mag recently that came to us who wanted to uh, show us the story that they've written that they were extremely proud of, which involved describing in great detail how this man had... Um, create, used a rope, 
uh, got near a fence, thought about kicking a, you know, a, a chair away. So really going into quite graphic details about means to uh, potentially ending his life. Um, we strongly, uh, you know, we basically said you can't report in that way. It's totally against the mind frame guidelines. You need to be aware of this. There is no value add to the story in doing this. This guy did not take our advice. The article was published as written. And the comment back to us was, those details added authenticity to the, to the story. Now, there is absolutely nothing authentic about something that potentially causes harm to somebody else. Um, so, I mean, yes, we are getting better at it, but I still think there are um, uh, misguided, um, you know, uh, instances where, you know, we, we still have to, we can't, we can't be complacent. And the work that um, Mark and Mindframe and others do, SANE, for example, are doing a lot of work around imagery. You know, the, more, the head clutcher shot, you know, that, that uh, online and, and news media, are, are, they love the good head clutcher shot. It's really tricky, though, because, you know, I have to do TV stories about mental health and um, online stories, and it's, it is tricky because you don't want to revert to cliched images, but um, when you're talking about something that, that... That's why having the personal stories is so yeah. valuable, because then you can tell someone's story rather than revert to, you know, sad shots of people, that, you know, with their heads in their hands and stuff like that. So... But, but the majority, I guess, look, I, I don't disagree with you, but I am going to disagree with you. Um, I mean, just, I, it is tricky. It is, look, me, it yeah. is really tricky because, I mean, you know, we're, we're not that Pollyanna-ish to, to imagine that a, a media story's got to be newsworthy. Got to, you know, of course it has, but there are ways of achieving newsworthiness by, you know, modelling hope and recovery rather than despair and, you know, heads in hands. The majority of people who live with mental illness are incredibly well-functioning people just like us. Surprise, surprise. So... I'd just like to add, I'm loving what everyone's saying. It's well, totally mind-framed, so it's excellent. Um, <laughs> I was just saying about like, online, entertainment, and traditional media. At Mindframe, we kind of see like there's, um, there's no, like, we see this massive convergence. And what we've kind of seen is like what Georgie was saying, like things are like different from like last year or even the year before. And like for Mindframe to try and write some guidelines for online, it's been like a nightmare because every time we get to a round table, within a few months, things have changed. And, you know, uh, and one, one credit I would give to our sector is that um, in Australia, because we have such long processes in the UK, at least here there's been a bit of like um, taking a bit of a risk. And I think... Um, the Inspire Foundation did that in the 90s when they first did on, I think it was called Reach Out. I don't sure if it's full title back then, but it was called the Inspire Foundation. And they did this website called Reach Out that had never been, no, no evidence behind it. But things like that would take a long, long time to get off the ground in the UK. But what I kind of like to see here is if you look, and I'm pretty much, I'm a, like a media obsessive, so I'm on social media, reading the media, looking at what they're saying in Russia, Canada, I'm telling off Canadian journalists, why am I doing that? Why, I can't even speak French. Um, but what I've kind of seen is what some of the changes, and this is just an assumption I'm making, so there's not much evidence, because the evidence can't keep up, it's almost like impossible. So we need to hear these things that when Beyond Blue are saying we're working out um, in real time, how things, what evidence is telling us without ethics, that kind of thing. But what we're kind of seeing is the media, the tr traditional media and entertainment are still massively significant because what's happened is, is now when you're on Facebook or, or even Twitter, it's the journalists or the media organizations and marketing behemoths 
are dominating. So you're seeing your streams, all your media, because they've worked out the art of online social media. And so for Mindframe, like for us, we've got two couple of targets. We're kind of seeing like online space is not that dangerous, really. Actually, the layperson is actually, other than we hear stories about trolls and bullies, the actual level of sophistication in Australia is actually quite high, particularly young people. And some of the evidence from Young and Well in, in Melbourne shows us that young people find it really good to be online. But it's mainly we're seeing overseas media now being consumed in Australia. So for Mindframe, kind of behind the scenes, we're trying to work out to say, look, what do we do different here? Talking to the different countries and saying, you've got to improve your media coverage because look, we've got the Daily Mail Australia, Guardian. we've got the Guardian Australia, we've got Post. Daily Beast, but we're doing some training at Huffington Post. Now what we've seen is one thing that we do differently and in the UK and in America, they put it in their new suicide prevention strategies, media should be trained in university, so before they become journalists. We've been doing it here for 18 years. It's like a no-brainer. What we saw at the Daily Mail Australia, they did a really bad story. I sent them a message in the UK. I, disclaimer, my dad worked for the Daily Mail for 25 years, so I know all the bad things about it, and he's still a bit like that in retirement. Um, they told me to, to like get lost. Like, I was sort of doing more diplomacy, and I was like, what? And I had to speak to someone in the UK. But what I saw was a trend was there was a few suicides or stories talking about mining in WA. And obviously there was a new Australian journalist on the Daily Mail Australian, but I recognised her. She had been someone who had been at university. The whole crop of young new journalists are, are on their newspapers. Same with the Guardian Australian. Huffington Post contacted us and said, oh, we're the new guys. Um, when you come down to do some training? And we're like, you found us, that's the difference. So that new young crop of journalists, so don't give up on education and training. It's a bit like what you guys are doing, what Beyond Blue are doing in schools, young people. You prepare people's capacity, so when they eventually do go online, people's behavior will be different. And we see that with um, uh, traditional media and online. Now with entertainment, now Australia, and the Mindframe, we've doing, been doing it for about nine years now. It's called Stage and Screen. And what we saw very early on, the Australian Writers Guild uh, were early adopters. Now, Mindframe's quite organic. We're not, we've got our main media book here, which is a bit of a plug, but we have lots of different versions of, uh, of different types of uh, guidelines or, or advice or, or things to consider. And we did one with Stage and Screen, which is the entertainment sector. It was actually helped, written by script writers. We worked heavily with the uh, same media centre, had their um, what's called a speaker's bureau, a lived experience. And they actually came out and uh, scriptwriters were able to um, interview or interrogate people with uh, lived experience from schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, uh, personality disorders. And they could write real, that's where the real life was. And scriptwriters were saying that, this is, we've wanted this for ages, real information. It's better than making up um, myths and, and stereotypes. And I think that's what's um, a real um, thing to look forward to it's as everyone gets more sophisticated to talk about these issues, we actually will have the real stories, which is what Georgie was saying. It's so normal. Everyone's touched by it. It's like breaking your leg or um, having a, a migraine. It, it's just every day and um, having those real-life stories. And I think that's where we've got to in, in Australia, that level of sophistication to tell lived experience. And Mindframe's catching up a lot with the lived experience for suicide because, you know, it's a bit of a touchy area. We haven't got much evidence, but we can see that there is um, hope and 
um, really good stories to come through that area. Yeah, and that's an area I want to move to now um, because uh, you keep mentioning guidelines and one general question I would have um, is how much do we actually agree what is the right way to report things? Because that's like what I realized when I did, uh, I worked on the evaluation of time to change in London, England, which is the biggest national anti-stigma campaign. And there people try to, you know, explain what is the right attitude to have towards mental health, what is the right way to speak. But I always wonder, like, I mean, there's a danger that we become a little bit dogmatic. Do we really know what is the right way to speak about it? Do we really know what is the right attitude to have? So I think this is always like a philosophical question uh, in the background. And to make it a little bit more concrete, uh, I would like to go back to the topic now of how we report about suicide. Because I think this is a big issue and what I sense is there's like a development at the moment happening here in Australia that people aren't so sure anymore, like is it really the best thing not to speak about it? And if we speak about it, what are the uh, things we talk about? And you briefly you know, mentioned that too. So, um, because I think I cut you a little bit short earlier, Sophie, no, okay. I, I would like to start with you and uh, because I know you wanted to say something about it. Yeah, look, I think there really has been a significant um, change in the media's attitude towards reporting suicide. I know, you know, we see a lot more reporting of it. We see a lot of you know, newspapers have done campaigns about youth suicide in a very um, caring and respectful to the families, and the families have wanted to speak out. And I certainly know from my perspective that, um, you know, I remember pitching stories even, you know, maybe three or four years ago about suicide statistics and things like that and it was very difficult or more difficult to get my boss's interest in those sort of stories whereas now um, I did a story last week about a report looking at um, it was interviews with people who'd had a suicide attempt and, and their interaction with um, different mental health professionals and different health professionals and their experience so and and uh, that was through the Black Dog Institute and they had also sourced um, a young woman that we could speak to as well so we had someone with the first-hand experience who is now very well and functioning and an ambassador for the Black Dog who could talk about her experience of what it was like to go through um, having a suicide attempt and having a, a really bad experience with the health professionals but got through it and on the other side and now could talk about it. So um, that, that story prompted you know, a lot of um, media attention. We had a lot of people writing in about their experiences. So I think that's good. I think we need to keep talking about suicide. I think there has been the tendency, Mark might disagree, but certainly I think in some parts of the media to think that oh, we, we shouldn't report suicide because we don't really know what to say. and we'll probably just better not go there. Um, so that has been the case for a few years, but I think there's a big shift. I think even, it might have even been the last two years that there's been a big shift and um, we're, we're reading about it. It's happening, you know, and it needs to be reported. This is happening to people in Australia and the people, you know, we need to be telling those stories so that um, families don't go through, um, you know, the, the awful um, experience of losing someone to suicide. So, um, yeah, the, I think the more we need to keep those conversations going. Um, and I think it's the start of the change, but I think we have a long way to go still. Um, would you agree, Mark? Yeah, yeah I, I definitely agree. Um, I think um, in terms of, like, uh, how it's reported in the media, 
Um, we've gone through, I think since about 2010, um, quite turbulent times in Australia in terms of like funding. So if we're talking about advocacy or suicide prevention stories, this is where it gets a little bit confusing because how we use statistics um, that, that can appeal to advocacy, give us more money, look how many people are dying, or is it a, a suicide prevention message? Um, I think that's where things have changed. And I think some of that has influenced for the better as well because it's generated more of a conversation or bringing out of the shadows real, um, real issues instead of focusing just on death uh, um, and doom and gloom and moving away from and getting, chipping away at some of those other things about um, the, the stigma of, of imagery, but also the stigma um, not just about talking um, or, or saying suicide. Some elements of suicide need to be a stigma. We don't want to normalize um, suicide, but we do want to break down the stigma <coughs> of talking, and particularly for those at most risk, which happens to be the bereaved, um, particularly on anniversaries, but they can't go open and talk because of that um, maybe stigma they're feeling um, around not being able to openly talk about it. But I think going back further than two years, I think around 2010, we had the Senate inquiry, and uh, funny enough that Mindframe got um, mentioned in that, said, you know, why, why can't Mindframe help like a suicide prevention campaign in Australia like they have in Scotland? Um, and we helped the government with their response, and we had to say, if you go to their website in Scotland, it says thank you for the people from the Australian government's Mindframe National Media Initiative for having a comprehensive guideline on how to talk about this, and they did their adverts. Um, it is more of a case of um, um, a lot of advocacy, we need to talk about this. And, and I hear it all the time, really, because I scour the media all the time. But we need to make sure that if we're having a conversation, it's like, what kind of messages are we going to put out that are meaningful, have context? And when we put out um, accurate statistics like seven people will die today, if you think of someone who's hopeless out there today, what message do they take home from just keep reminding them that it's so many people are dying? But if it adds context, um, I think that's where you have an opportunity to actually send some hope. Whereas if you really looked at suicide statistics in Australia since the mid-90s, they've come down quite a lot. And um, when we compare to even 10 years ago, we say like numbers are an all-time like high. They're not an all-time high. We actually collect more data now than we ever have before. From 2006, we have three years' worth of um, uh, ABS data for, for one year. Because some coronial um, inquests take more than 12 months. And pre-2006, they never got included and our suicide statistics. So our rates are kind of a little bit lower than, than, than 10 years ago, but they would probably be higher if we went back and we did three years worth of data. But I do think we do need to alert the community to, to get governments to, to invest money. So that's where advocacy uh, and to really be talking about why it's an issue. But when you really, really look down at the statistics where they're more powerful, it's where you actually look that don't homogenize the whole of Australia. You know, not all farmers are at risk. Not all young people are at risk. But if you really want to use statistics to look, look at Queensland. You know, look at some of their rates. Big population, high rates. But when we look at some of the stories, it's like all Australian young people are at risk. We need to be have a, a real good conversation of like um, in the media of uh, telling the people where the problems are. It's the same with indigenous suicide. Not all indigenous communities are at risk. I know of a, com uh, of a community in New South Wales where they have a lower suicide rate face some of the horrendous problems of uh, social deprivation uh, um, and all the other um, uh, issues that the, these communities have faced, but they're quite a resilient community. So, um, yeah, that's all it's I have to say. Sorry to interrupt. You should never invite a journalist on a panel. They ask too many questions. It's one of the problems, though, that 
you know, when you're talking about you need, you know, public awareness campaigns and, and advocacy plays a role, but, and to be cynical for a moment, you know, politicians, there needs to be the political will to put the money towards those campaigns. And if you... Yeah, and it has oh, to be no, sustained. Yeah. And so you could, you could argue that there may not be... You know, one of the difficulties is that you look at, um, you know, the government spending lots of money on this ICE campaign at the moment because they may feel that that's something that, that the public is interested in and the voters are interested in. How do you change things so that you get the political will to run these campaigns where there may not necessarily be something that's going to be a vote-winning no, you know, I, no, I totally agree. I think in, in Australia, that is probably where we're lacking that cohesion of all our so many NGOs, some big, some small. Um, which which campaign, like I suppose, in the, I don't know too much about Time for Change, but it was more of a broad campaign that all agencies um, put into. But we have got lots of agencies in suicide prevention advocacy, like Beyond Blue now moved into the space. They're advocating information. Say in Australia are doing it. We have Are You OK Day? That's a national suicide prevention campaign. I know it's supposed to be one day, but they're doing all year. So there is things going on advocating. Um, we've just been, I saw you at the Senate Inquire or the Senate um, summit when we was at Canberra House, and the overwhelming um, political will. But I suppose it's that thing you do need the advocacy to get funds, and I know that because we so, want them. So I think I think um, uh, the the sort of knee-jerk reaction, let's just have a suicide awareness prevention awareness campaign, is is the lazy option, um, and I don't say that lightly. Um, I think that. I mean, what our work shows is that um, I'm more interested in having a conversation nationally about, uh, you know, why people um, are getting to the point that they are in so much pain that an alternative, you know, a real option for them is, is, is death. Um, I also think that we're very good at... So my sector talks often about... Suicide prevention is everybody's business. Um, yet we cannot translate that into what the everyday man, woman, child, transgender person, whoever that person is on the street, would not have the first idea what that means and how personally they could be part of the solution. So, I mean, I th I'm very interested in having that conversation about how do we translate what is going on for people in high distress and in significant pain and how everybody in the community can play a role, whether it is asking, are you okay? Um, so you mentioned Black Dog and Helen Christensen. We, we did some fantastic research, or well, they did some fantastic research for us last year about men um, because the way that we communicate to men is very different to how we communicate to women and young people. So men, we talk about taking action. We don't talk about seeking support. And, and again, I think we need to be having a conversation through the media and through other forms of w breaking down those notions of traditional masculinity, um, which is really causing, I think, significant amounts of harm and stopping a lot of men from actually reaching out and saying, I'm struggling. So Helen Christensen's research um, was really... Uh, into, we, we, they, they spoke to or interviewed um, or surveyed 300 men who in the previous 12-month period had actually attempted suicide. 
but they also spoke to their families and friends. And guess what? There were some really common themes. There was a very steady, slow decline into, into you know, suicidality and the point at which someone was seriously going to think about acting. Um, depressed mood, withdrawal from life, um, self-medication through drugs and alcohol. Um, and in having those conversations with those men, we found almost um, to a man that every single one of them wanted someone to say, I'm really worried about you and I'm seeing these signs in you. So, and they would have responded best to friends and family members. And the kinds of things they would have responded to was, I've been noticing these things in you. You don't come fishing with us anymore. You're, you, know, you don't take the dog for a walk. I know you haven't seen the kids for a while. I know you're having relationship problems. I'm really worried about you. People love you, care about you, rely on you. Are you thinking about killing yourself? Now that is, you know, is a very, very big step for a layperson to take, but there's no evidence that suggests that by asking that question very directly and honestly, it creates any further risk to that person. It, it will not tip them into um, a, an attempt on their lives. So I think there's some really interesting lessons that we, we can learn from research like this, which is about, again, what real people are thinking and doing and, and, and acting upon, and how we can then uh, change our messages and systems and responses to adapt to those real experiences. Before we can clap, before we, <laughs> um, before we move um, to the Q&A session with the audience, there's one last question I would like to ask the panel, and um, it brings me back to something that you, that you mentioned. I realized in the kind of campaigning work and the work against mental health stigma, um, what people often point out that a lot of people with uh, mental health problems are actually high functioning, very high functioning, which is kind of good to uh, kind of try to destigmatize. But one issue I have with this, it sounds a little bit as if, if you have a mental health problem, we're not high functioning, that this might be you know, a, a bad thing which is to be stigmatized. And so I feel it is really important that we can also um, communicate the message that also mental health issues that may make you really low functioning are okay. So I think we don't have to be high functioning to be respected by society. I think that's an important topic which I find is a little bit neglected in the whole kind of campaigning world. And it brings me a little bit to like a piece you wrote uh, in the conversation about inspiration porn, which I find really interesting. You wrote this, wrote this more about physical disability, but I would like to hear your sure. opinion about mental health uh, issues, because basically it says that we often like to talk about people with disabilities and go you know, on about like, oh, look, this person has a disability, but the person can still do A, B, and C. How great is that? And it, in a way, it's nice because it does communicate a positive message, but it can get to the point where it's actually a bit patronizing, where even disabled people say like, well, yeah, I have a disability, but, you know, of course I can still function. Why, you know, should this be pointed out? That in itself could be stigmatizing. And that brings me back to the discussion about the high-functioning thing in mental health. So what's the whole you know, 
discussion about like do we have to be high functioning to be respected by society and what's the whole issue about inspiration porn when it comes to mental health problem i know it's yeah, a tough it's a question great, no, but i know you can deal with it gerard give it a go give it a go it's a great question and the, you know the critique is not mine it's still young who many people know and but it's i think it's been very important around disability to recognize that that uh, on the one hand, there's this shift that I think I hear the panel describing to say around mental health, to say, well, we managed to do this critique around the language or the image, the clutching, but what's the new language? What are the new languages? What's the new vocabulary? And how do we get to the point that Georgie's made? How do we get to that connection with people? What are the languages that we all would use when we're having mental health issues that I would use, that, you, you know, how do we reconnect around that? And I think there is a bit of an obstacle around this because I think one of our responses is to privilege certain sorts of um, representative types around mental health and illness, around other areas of disability that we feel more comfortable with, whereas you know, that can leave out a lot of people's experiences, a lot of the complexity around that. And, you know, uh, that, that, you know, and then when we have a combination of different you know, aspects of life and then things that we don't want to, um, or the trouble us about a society that, that, you know, that's really problematic. And I think that critique of inspiration porn can be really useful in to think around mental health. Because I think there is this sense in which a key lesson from looking at critically at disability and the response of people with disabilities and a range of other people is to say, you know, disability is important uh, not only for people who we regard as having disability or who identify as disability, but for us as a society, because it's about how we define what's human. And the scholar Tom Shakespeare has this great phrase that people with disability are often dustbins for disavowal, that we see in disability things we fear, our mortality, you know, death, suffering, a bunch of other things that we wind up with this. And I think around mental health there are similar issues as well, around very real fears about coping, very real fears about functioning and capability that are wound into this. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks a lot. I knew you could deal with the question. Thank you very much. I think, uh, I mean, I would love to, you know, continue in this wonderful panel, uh, but I also want to hear your opinion. So I think it's now a good time to open the mic to everybody from the audience who has a question. Hi, my name's Camilla. I'm in the Department of Gender and Cultural Studies doing my PhD on child sexual abuse. I did my master's thesis on the representation of mental health in the media. So what I'm interested in is representing um, meet like real life scenarios in the media from an ethics standpoint. How do you sort of justify doing that when so much of um, so many mental illnesses are linked to trauma? I mean, going into a mental institution and like recording as a fly in the wall, like what is the ethics of that um, when people in the institution cannot give informed consent? I know what happened with that documentary was that they filmed what went on and then and sought permission at the time, but it wasn't until every person who was filmed what had recovered and could then give informed consent that they could use anything that, of that person. And some of the patients weren't able to give informed consent and they weren't able to include them in the documentary. And so, what was the ethic, sorry, what was the process of getting like ethics for informed consent? Like, was it quite rigorous? Oh, uh, it would have, yeah. I mean, I, it, I wasn't involved with this documentary, so I know just on my little 
what the stories I do, which aren't half as involved as they do, that, that the major um, things you have to, the hurdles you have to overcome to obtain approval to film any patient in any hospital, um, particularly with someone with a mental illness as well. And the patients that I interview are usually ones that, or almost always ones that have recovered and are at the other stage of their journey and able to talk about what they went through. Um, recovery is a very elusive concept in itself. Mm -hmm. Like, it's sort of somewhat like there's clinical recovery mm -hmm. and there's a recovery journey. So what I, do you mean by recovery? I guess, I guess I would be... I'll just finish my answer by saying I would be guided by... Um, I don't have direct contact with patients other than through their clinicians. So if a, if a clinician says to me... Um, you know, this has been a patient of mine and, you know, she's now doing really well and she feels comfortable talking about this issue. I feel she's well enough to talk about this issue. I have to be guided by their expertise and still make a, a judgment call about whether I've, I still feel that person is, is up to talking about something which is potentially very upsetting for them. Um, yes. I think Mark wanted to say something briefly before we move to the next question. Yeah, just to, to briefly, we commissioned Professor Mark Pearson from Bond University. I think he's moved to Griffith, Griffith University now. Um, and we've got the look called the legalities of um, what you can do in uh, mental health or mental institutions. And uh, there's quite, in each different state and territory, there's quite strong um, ethics. And it's a bit of a guide for the media that what they might have to go through for interviewing and getting informed consent, it's very, very difficult. And that's why in terms of from mind frame, we tend to say if you work with like Beyond Blue or SANE or, or um, uh, other, other mental health organisations, they have like speakers bureaus where they, and it's all about, um, like you were saying, at the moment they feel informed consent. How do they feel a week later after it's been printed because journalists media's moved on to the next yeah, then we to the, so to make sure they've got someone to count and I think it works pretty well in Australia that we, um, I don't know if um, Sane can't, can't speak in today but um, well, I they know the Black Dog provided time. this um, patient for us last week and they provided a lot of support beforehand on the day and afterwards to make sure that they were getting really good support um, it, it's a really interesting question but I, I would love to give the other people also a chance to ask questions so Thank you for the question. Maybe we could move on to the next question, please. Hi, so I'm Danielle and I'm a Masters of Rehab Counselling student here at the University of Sydney. Um, today we've sort of covered mental health topics in the media and how that's in basically encouraging an awareness of it and also allowing people a chance to find where they can actually seek support. But there's a lot of evidence to say that there's a lot of people with mental illness that are from lower socioeconomic um, backgrounds or they're quite disadvantaged anyway. So how can the media reach them and how do they know where to get support? That's a very good question. Very important question. Anybody dares to answer it? So I think, I think, Danielle, you've raised a really important point because organisations like mine, you know, we, we create a lot of public interest and community interest in these issues and we're, you know, our, our main call to action is, you know, there is help out there, nothing to be ashamed or afraid of, call these numbers, go and see your GP, whatever. That assumes then there's, there's somewhere for them to go that's affordable, nearby, all the rest of it. I think uh, we're, in, we're at a point in, in, in mental health reform in this country where the National Mental Health Commission has made some quite significant 
um, recommendations to the Commonwealth Government about system change, because at the moment we have a system that's really focused on um, clinicians and um, rather than people and what people need. And I think the point was made earlier about mental health being seen constantly through the paradigm of health, when in fact my experience of working with people who live with a range of mental illnesses is that quite often the thing that's least important to them is the health system. It's actually somewhere safe to live, it's strong, healthy relationships, it's a good education and a job that is meaningful whether that's paid or unpaid. So I think, I mean, what, what is Nirvana? If, I have, if I'm having a, a, exhibiting the early signs and symptoms of depression, I know exactly where to go. I know it's cheap or it's affordable for me, um, that when I go to my doctor, my doctor will not just put me on antidepressants and give me a mental health treatment plan to go and have six sessions under Medicare, but will actually spend time with me talking about what is going on in my whole life, checking my physical health. Um, and that you know the doctor might prescribe online therapies which are free and cheap and just as efficacious as, as a face-to-face -face therapy in most circumstances, not all circumstances. So I mean I think there's some real opportunities for system change that actually gets the the, meets the biggest need, which is you know we know that a lot of people, if they live in leafy green suburbs, have a choice of services. When you move outside of those leafy green suburbs, you know, quite often there's, there's a real struggle to find services. So I think it's a really good point. I don't know what the answer is. There's some ideas. There is those online services where you can get counselling help for free and Lifeline has some great resources as well. But that also requires someone to have access to Absolutely. internet and yeah. computers totally. and the like. So if totally. we're talking about people that are homeless or yeah. things like that, they're a bit no, no, harder no, look, to You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, you know, I, I think more and more people are online these days. More and more people have smartphones. There's a lot of fantastic um, apps that people are developing um, that are free that, you know, can, you, you can use on your, your iPhone. I know that, you know, you still have to pay for a plan and all that kind of stuff. So, look, you've raised a really good point. In terms of like help seeking, like you've got like helplines, go online, but workforce, um, having people like change agents in a workforce, like if you look at some of the organisations like Mates in Construction, Foreman, and we know that that's one of our biggest suicide rates is in people who are working like uh, in, in Eurotradies, um, go through TAFE, and you have these people there that that's the first point of call, they can actually go and speak to someone to say, I don't feeling, you know, whichever language that they use in that workforce. I think that's where the exciting thing, I think, in uh, Australia that I'm kind of like noticing, not just reading the media, but looking amongst our sector, going to conferences and listening, because they're saying, this is really interesting, because uh, I think workforce is the um, really, and, and in schools as well, you know, to, just to normalize and enable people to go to someone they trust is that first step. Um, and I think in workforce, um, it's quite an interesting area. It's really important, but, but I think the step before that is people even knowing where to go. It is totally bewildering, the mental health system. There is no system. Thank you. Thank you very much for the question. Uh, I think you also have a question. You're queuing. Absolutely. 
Uh, my name is David and I work here at the university uh, in human resources, uh, but my interest is, um, I guess, from a more personal perspective. So I think um, one of the things that can really help people um, who are suffering from particularly anxiety and depression is being able to access uh, and read about success stories. Um, when you're feeling at your worst, that's probably something that you would look to um, to help and, and, and give you some hope that things will get better. I'm just wondering um, how you see the role um, of media in, in sharing those, and do you think that there's um, enough and that and the people who are suffering can actually, uh, other than finding help, I guess, can actually find stories from people who have recovered from anxiety and depression and uh, have gone on to live wonderful and fulfilled lives? Well, I mean, I can speak from, from, from my organisation's perspective. Every single story that we have, and we have many of them in multiple forms, is absolutely about hope. So, yes, the person tells their, tells their you know, struggles, their, their darkest times, but then we will not publish something unless it ends with a positive, hopeful message of, you know, recovery is possible. It's not always a permanent state, um, sometimes it's an ongoing battle and, you know, many people talk about being in recovery, but that's something they have to work at constantly. Um, so that's, I mean, we have that, that's that policy that touches everything that we do. The other thing that I, the other mechanism that I think, and again, it's not traditional media, is we, we have social, uh, we have online forums hosted within our website, which is basically a peer-to-peer -peer chat room. Um, we moderate it through technology and also humans. Um, but you just let people go. You find people come onto those, um, onto our online forums, you know, at one o'clock in the morning, and they enter very tentatively and they say, you know, I've never done this before, I'm kind of feeling this way, I'm not quite sure whether or not I'm going mad, um, is this normal? And then within five minutes you'll have five or six other people actually saying, you know, it's completely normal. I've been there, this is what I found, this worked for me, this didn't work for me, have you tried this? And you just see this fantastic conversation unfold um, that people who absolutely understand what I'm going through, uh, and, and there's something really, really incredible about that. So I think that's, that's an, again, another mechanism that we need to be pushing out there more and encouraging media to be promoting. I would also like to hear Sophie's opinion about this. Like, does ABC attach great importance to having these positive messages? Look, I think, I mean, I do. <laughs> I can't speak for the whole of the ABC, but I certainly, that's one of the reasons I enjoy covering health, because you can tell a positive story. If you think about most other um, branches of journalism, it's, it's basically bad news, you know, it's negative, it's, you know, crime or politics or... Um, you know, it's, it's telling negative, bad stories, but health is one of the few areas where you can actually tell a good story, a positive and uplifting story. I have noticed in the last couple of years that it, it is harder to get those positive stories to air, that the tendency, sort of the default position has become that, you know, bad news is what, is, you know, what people want to hear. I actually think that you need to hear, I think the opposite. So I... Um, I mean, you need to tell legit the stories of the what, what's happening in the community, but I think people, and I, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that a lot of people are turning off traditional media because they, at the end of a busy, you know, long working day, you want to turn on a program and be completely depressed by what you hear. I think you need to hear 
some good things that are happening in the world. And I think, I hope that that will be a transition of the media in the future, that we, we can increasingly tell stories of people doing well and succeeding and offering hope and meaning to people that, you know, that there is, it is worthwhile to keep watching them. ABC Open, it's user content generated, and they asked us to, to give some training to the producers, <clears throat> and they sent us some of the stories, and uh, some of them are the most blew me away of like people telling their own stories and they've had no mind frame training or anything and it was just fabulous to see these people telling their own personal experiences and like the language thing we talked about but that coming from a first hand experience these are amazing stories to be told I just thought that was amazing ABC great. Open great thank you uh, we have one last super quick question I think oh sorry okay Questions and maybe we can just go for it. Okay. Um, hi, my name's Georgia Woodward. I'm an actor and I um, speak in the media for the Butterfly Foundation, um, sharing my story of an eating disorder to hopefully, um, this is all what I'm about, is getting people to talk about mental illness. And um, I speak at high schools and things like that. Try And I guess what I'm trying to say tonight is like discussion is so... There is no answer to how we solve these problems about what's the right thing to do, but I think the power of discussion is what it's all about. And I know from personal experience, I just thought it might be worthwhile sharing. Um, when I share my story to either young people or adults, um, the effect that it has on people, when they, especially young children, when they're like, oh, wow, I, I actually have this problem too, and just getting the discussion going, it's so powerful. But also, recently I saw a play at the Seymour Centre, um, which was a first-hand account about um, a girl who had an eating disorder. And um, it, people were coming out of the auditorium being like, I had no idea that that's what went on. And I think that that happens as well, there's just this miscommunication. Um, but I just thought that might be worthy to mention. So sharing this, this really important point to keep the discussion going. That's yeah. why we meet today. It's very powerful. So thank, thank you. And thank you for the work that you do as well. You're yeah. welcome. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Your last, Hi. last yes, question. <laughs> I'm Nikki. Um, I'm actually a social work student. Um, and on a personal note, I actually have a son, 18-year-old son, who um, was diagnosed with uh, bipolar schizoid associate dissociative disorder um and affective disorder that's the one thank you <laughs> difficult to pronounce especially when you're not native speaker yeah um so that's the one yes um and so like a lot of you have spoken about the positives the hope the, that those kind of pictures and yeah i i kind of like wrote down how do we make sure though that we don't push those hope, positives, all those so far that for those people who don't feel up to that level yet, where they, where they start thinking that I must be doing something wrong, you know? Um, and, and sometimes it's also about the people who, who have a mental illness who was diagnosed that is not necessarily easy to treat and so I know that my son quite often says 
it's all nice and well for them to say it will go okay, but that's not how I feel. And so, and that's why I'm kind of like saying, how do we balance, you know, to make sure, I like what Mark said, to make sure that we talk about what is actually happening, what people are feeling, you know, if it's suicide, what, whatever it is. We need to talk about that. And also then, hopefully, you know, trying to push those positive pictures in it. But I think, you know, the balance is really important. That's a really good point. It brings us back to what we talked about earlier, this kind of balance between optimism and positivity, which is important, but then again, also being accurate and not raising false hopes. That's a really good question. I wish we had 15 minutes yeah. to talk about it. Maybe we can give it a quick answer, if possible, at all. I mean, look, we, my, my organisation's focus is depression and anxiety. There are many people who live with bipolar, schizoaffective disorder who also have depression and anxiety. They're very democratic diseases, yeah? yeah? So, you know, we're not just dealing with a nice, fluffy side of life. You know, we tell stories that are incredibly dark, but then, you know, these people have found a way yeah. to manage their illness, to, to find a life that has meaning for them. And I guess that, to me, is the central message. We, you know, unashamedly, we will always come back to that because we know time and time again that it might be your son at two o'clock in the morning who sees that and thinks, yep. you know what, maybe there is hope and maybe that keeps him going and gives yep. you the strength as his mum to keep going. Yep. So, but I yeah, think, but yeah, like because I, I, have, I totally agree. You, I you, have been we told cannot, by cannot, my son and by other yeah. people because I have worked with people with mental illness that don't patronise me. Absolutely. Don't give me Absolutely. that strength-based approach. Yep. Yep. You know, like that. Oh, don't worry, it'll all be yep. okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can I say one thing? Um, I think when ABC ran Mental Hours last week, we... Look, I, wasn't, I was only involved in the periphery of it, but I know just some anecdotally, some people said that uh, who had, you know, children with severe mental illnesses, that they felt that some of the programming was too positive and too glossy and it put too much of a shine on and a happy shine on yeah. and not didn't reflect people's really lived experience mm. but having said that I think one of the mo one of the most powerful things that they did put to air was that documentary in the mental health ward where right. you did see what's and all what people go through yeah. and but also at the other side when the patients had recovered so it didn't gloss over what people go through no. but it yeah. ultimately had an optimistic message about how people you can yeah. get better. There's yeah. got to be a place for outrage. Yeah. There's got to be yes, a place for yeah. outrage. And I think, you know, yeah. in, in regards to that whole idea of that, you know, some people will actually struggle for a very long time. Yeah, so it will be years and years and years and they keep on seeing positive messages and they keep on thinking, so what, what am I doing wrong? Why is it, this not happening to me? You know, that kind of thing. So I think it's really, I would love to see more balance yeah. in that mm -hmm. where we can actually, so that they don't feel like they are marginalised within a marginalised group of people. Okay. Thank you very much, Mark. I just want to thank you both for sharing. I thought yeah, that was yeah, really, absolutely. really important to acknowledge that. Um, and for someone like I've got lived experience in my family of similar uh, um, disorders. And like, I'll just let you know from the side of the fence, from any of you know in our own sector, we're sending out positive messages. And when you're dealing with it from a personal experience as well, and you're thinking, we haven't got the bloody answer. Yeah. But you just keep going. And I think um, 
those really powerful stories of showing the real dark side of, of what it's right. like. I think Stephen Fry's story is oh, one of those stories yeah. of showing it was really horrible. He went through yeah. tremendous like pain, um, and he says it will come back, but he has ways of how he copes. And mm -hmm. I think having that hope, yeah. but also being honest as well, and, and getting that balance right. Yeah. So, thank yeah. you. Thank you. So great conversation. <laughs> It's a great conversation, as you can see, you know, it, it's really interesting. We keep, could keep going and going, but um, I think we are running out of time. And actually, we managed to finish this event quite in time, which makes my inner German very, very happy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I want to thank all the panelists again for coming. This was absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, I want to thank again for the organization, the interpreters, and I hope your hands are not hurting. I know we are, we are speaking quickly. Thank you. And uh, also I want to thank the audience for staying until the end and for the wonderful question and for sharing personal experiences. I want to encourage you to attend also other events from the Disability Awareness Week and find out about this in the internet. And I want to... Uh, welcome you to join us for drinks and food and a reminder if you loved what you heard today a lot <laughs> and you want to hear it again it will be broadcast uh, at radio national abc thank you, thank you